Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of every good thing that comes from you. Everything good does. Uh, this sunshine, Lord, this refreshing breeze, uh, the ability to meet together, and whether we're gathered or not, Lord, to have hundreds of people watching online. Thank you for the gift of living in these days where in such a time as this, Lord, where we've been forced to be separate from each other, we can still stay connected to one another. Lord, give me grace as I open your word. May I always speak the truth. May I do it in such a way that the truth will be well received and seen for the beauty and the goodness, Lord, that you have placed in it. Open our hearts, make us sensitive, Lord, to your guidance. Correct us where we need it. Encourage, Lord, the brokenhearted. Heal, Lord, those who are hurting. Bind up the wounded. Do the things, Jesus, that only you can do, we pray in your name. Amen. Before we open in the Gospel of Luke, I need to tell you something, and it's going to seem ironic and, and contradictory that I'm making this confession and expressing this concern right now in view of what's about to happen. But I'm, like most people, I suppose, I'm continually evaluating myself. Uh, I can hardly stand to listen to my own sermons, uh, but I do keep an eye on myself because I want to do with what God has given me, the best possible job I can in service to Him and in service to you. And recently I've been pretty concerned and upset with myself that I've been preaching too long, and hopefully today I'll correct course. But that might seem impossible because first, after a great deal of prayer, I just feel obligated to talk to you about something that's in the news. I wish I didn't. Uh, but so many people have been talking about it, and so many people have asked about it, and I've seen so many well-meaning but poor Christian reactions to it. I'd rather just address publicly something that has been in the news for weeks, but especially was strong in the last several days. It has to do with the uh, exposure and the utter failure of a very well-known ministry, the ministry of Ravi Zacharias. Uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, uh, was born in India, has a rather remarkable conversion story of coming to Christ, and then for many years until his recent uh, death of cancer has been widely regarded as probably the best and the most eloquent defender of the Christian faith. His eloquence is well known. He's written uh, countless books. His ministry has been supported by many millions of dollars. He literally has a global presence. The trouble is that several years ago, accusations started being leveled against Zacharias regarding his character. Those became loud enough, insistent enough, incredible enough that his own ministry commissioned after his death a third-party investigation into his behavior and what the report which they released to the public revealed uh, a few days ago was uh, a man of truly monstrous behavior. I won't get into the details, and if you've been subject to uh, sexual abuse or a sexual crime, I would certainly advise you not to look into it. Uh, but it is the kind of sinfulness and evil and 
actual criminality that would be appalling by anyone's standards, including secular standards, including standards that don't appeal to God at all. And because Ravi Zacharias was such an eloquent witness for Christ and helped so many all over the world, including the nation's elite universities, defend their faith, that has really shaken the faith of some Christians. So, though I am not his judge, I do want to give you some pastoral guidance. If you'll take your Bible with me, please, and open it, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, let me remind you and review with you for the benefit of our church what the Bible says about spiritual leaders. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is charging Timothy with what kind of people, what kind of men should be appointed to the office of pastor. And these character traits must be found in anyone who has influence, oversight, gives spiritual direction to anyone. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone, desire, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And that word, that qualification, above reproach, really guides the list that follows. What it literally means in Greek is that the person who is being considered or who has been entrusted with spiritual leadership, it literally means that he cannot be held. In other words, that he can't be pinned down with serious accusations that his life will stand scrutiny. He cannot be held accountable or pinned to the wall with an accusation of wrongdoing. Everything else that follows is really an explanation, I believe, of that singular standard. Not perfect, but a person of integrity. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, something that American churches sometimes disregard to disaster. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now look over with me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let's put two concepts together that we've just read about. An elder, a spiritual leader, should not be able to be credibly accused of serious wrongdoing. If accusations are being made, there must be some kind of multiple evidence so that those things are believable. Anybody can accuse anybody of anything at any time. Paul says, make sure that the character of that man is such that it is not believable. When two or three witnesses start telling you that there are concerns, then 
admit those charges. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Zacharias was accused multiple times by multiple people over the years. They were not listened to. Listen to this, because this may be important for the future of our church. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Here's where we go wrong so often in all of church history, but especially in contemporary church history because we have fallen so in love with giftedness. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Garner paraphrase, don't play favorites. Do not let tenure or relationship or likability or lovability keep you from enforcing these rules. You're being charged in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect, in other words, holy angels. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. In other words, don't be too quick to ordain people to ministry. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Often when spiritual leaders start to fail, there is complicity. People around them, often their staff, often their board, say, if he goes down, there goes my job. If he is exposed, there went our income. So a system is built around someone who is beginning to fail or who is actually corrupt and evil, and people for self-interest out of partiality help keep the secret. A little word of personal advice in verse 23, Timothy apparently had a bad stomach, Look down in verse 24. Paul's going to pick the thought up again. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that that are not cannot remain hidden. In other words, Paul is saying true character and actual behavior has a way of coming out. Sometimes people are exposed or can be celebrated in life. Other times we have to wait to judgment. Either way, both good and righteous deeds will someday be exposed. Why am I telling you all this? Because I want to guard our church. I am am not a judge of Zacharias or any other ministry. But I want to remind you, first of all, that the message and the messenger are separate things. In all of his public witness, in all of his preaching, and in everything I ever read in any of his books, I never found any biblical fault with what Zacharias said and did publicly. There's a video circulating now where he now somewhat eerily says, none of you know what I'm like in private, but God does. Now that sounds like a confession. But his public ministry gave faithful witness to Christ. But the messenger matters as well. The sin of the American church in particular, because we have built platforms through social media and because there's something in us that loves celebrity, is to excuse terrible sins and terrible failures on the part of a leader because the message itself is still true. God is so gracious that it literally doesn't matter who gives the message 
The gospel is so good and so true that if the gospel is actually proclaimed, the gospel, the message, God himself who is proclaimed can save people regardless of the worth of the person who's speaking of it. You may remember if you've read the gospels, demons were capable of telling the truth about Jesus. You may also notice that he invariably told them to be quiet. The message matters. So if you were blessed, if you were helped by his ministry, praise the Lord. What he taught you, what he preached to you was true. But the credibility, the qualification of the messenger also matters, which is why the Bible goes into this depth. Why does this matter? Because every pastor is a mere, frail, sinful human being and should I sin in a disqualifying way, you have to follow Scripture. You can't say, he was so good for so long, we like him so much, we feel bad for his wife, his poor sweet kids, all of that will be true, but you have to hold me to the biblical standard because it is God's Word. Make sense so far? When you don't, you don't do me any favors, you don't do the world any favors, you don't do the church any favors. Now, having said that, something that well-meaning Christians have said in response to the sin, which is very evident and very public and very grotesque, of Zacharias, was something that sounds like, there but for the grace of God go I. And what many people have heard in that is that all sins are equal. That is a common Christian cliche. Let me help you with that. All sins are not equal. The Bible doesn't say so, common sense doesn't say so, our own secular courts recognize that all sin is sinful, but not all sin is equally grave. We don't treat jaywalkers and murderers the same way in this country. No country does. Just one biblical piece of evidence, Jesus said that it would be more tolerable for pagan cities that had not known him on the day of judgment than it would be for the cities who saw and heard him repeatedly. There are some sins that are more grave than others. If the standard is perfection, no one could ever speak of Jesus, but when lines of credibility and serious integrity are crossed, then church discipline, actual correction in disqualification have to take place. And when we minimize serious sin by saying that all sins are alike, we really do grave harm to the victims of those serious crimes and those serious sins because what they hear is that what was done to them is no different from petty theft or no different from gossip, and they probably won't take, be taken seriously, and should they raise their voice, they will probably be told to be quiet because they will hurt the church, they will hurt the testimony, they will hurt the credibility of Jesus. There is no doubt that the name of Jesus is getting dragged and has been ever since there were men and women representing him and speaking of him. But Jesus himself is utterly trustworthy. If I ever fail you and fail the Lord and embarrass myself and embarrass my family by sinning in one of these disqualifying ways, you must hold me accountable. But the most important thing that you can do and that you must do is hold on to Jesus. 
It is Jesus who is being sinned against. It is Jesus who is being disobeyed. He himself has nothing to do with the sins, great or small, of the people who know him or claim to know him. Does this make sense? I want to talk about these things not because I'm a pundit. I'm not. If you've been here even for a few months, you, you know we just stick in the Bible. I don't have a running commentary of politics. But for those of you who watch the evangelical church world and now we have behaved so poorly for so long over the last two years, so many notable pastors have fallen in such spectacular, embarrassing ways that would get you fired from any secular organization. I felt today it would be good to speak a word of comfort to those of you whose faith may be shaken, to remind you that your faith is in Christ, to tell you as a church that we will and we must abide by Scripture without playing favorites, without partiality, and especially for those of you who may have been abused yourself. It is our commitment, it is my personal commitment down to the bone level to make this a safe place for you. So that if you credibly tell us that someone has hurt you, we will not condemn you, we will not attack you, we will not minimize what you're telling us has happened to you, we will listen to you with care and we will do what the Bible says, we will investigate carefully so that true justice and righteousness will be upheld and those who have been hurt and those who have been treated unjustly and sinfully will receive in the name of Christ the love and the justice of Christ by people who actually know him and love him. So however this has affected you, for some of you, I hope for many of you, this is the first time you're hearing of it. If it is, great. Don't spend your time, please, I'm asking you, don't spend a lot of time on the internet diving into the depths of this story. It is truly heartbreaking and discouraging. But if you've been shaken, I hope that provides some stability and some comfort. And especially if you've been hurt, if you've been victimized, because there is a certain kind of person, and I don't know about Zacharias, but I know from personal experience, dating back to childhood, there is a certain kind of person who comes into the church, not because they corrupt themselves, but because they are already corrupt, they already have evil in their heart, and they use the cloak of the gospel and the good name of Jesus to gain the trust of people so that then they may pray upon them. This is not a safe harbor for people who want to harm others. This is a safe harbor for those who have been hurt. And this is a place that will preach the gospel to all. Criminals and victims alike because Jesus truly does have the power to save and heal every single one of us. Let's pray and we'll look into the gospel of Luke. Lord, what I just shared and the story I've just mentioned are so, so ugly and there are so many different people here coming from so many different walks of life and different experiences that it's impossible for me to know who may be affected and how. I thank you that you know all of those things and you can care for each one and you can vindicate your own good righteous name. And you can keep the gospel moving forward, even if it's proclaimed, Lord, by actually wicked people or by simply frail and sinful people. The gospel will change lives. 
I thank you that there will be a day when you expose everything. You reward and bless what is good and right. And you will provide justice, Lord, to everyone who is not trusted in your Son as Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for being our righteous Savior. Thank you that our salvation does not depend on the faithfulness of any other person except you. Help us to love you and trust you in that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. When I was a kid, two chess masters became world famous by playing a series of matches. Like so many different things, because of what's on TV, I became interested, at least for a brief time, in chess. And I discovered something. Chess is a very complicated game, and I'm not smart enough to play it very well at all. I don't think I ever beat my dad, who taught me how to play. What was fascinating to me, well, there are so many things about these two Russian grandmasters playing chess. They would meet in exotic locations. There would be months of preparation and even negotiation of exactly how the match would go down. It was all extremely formal. There was a clock by the chessboard. They would put a graphic on the television screen explaining piece by piece, other people, not quite as good as the men playing, but other experts would explain what was likely in the strategy of each one. But the part that fascinated me the most is just when I thought the match was getting good, one of them would suddenly stop the clock, extend his hand, shake the hand of the other man, they would both stand up, thank the audience, and walk off, and the match was over. And there was no checkmate. And I couldn't even tell what had happened. What was happening is one of those men, precisely because he was so good, even though the match was not actually over, even though he had not yet been defeated, he knew it at all, it was all a foregone conclusion. And he would do what in chess is called a resignation. And whether through stopping the clock or shaking his opponent's hand, he would admit before the match was officially over to the eyes of the spectators, I've already lost. Luke chapter 20 is a story like that. It's going to sound a little bit technical because Jesus is now going to be attacked by a separate group known as the Sadducees. This is a small group but an influential group. They appear to have control of the temple. And the temple is in the hands of people who actually don't believe much of Hebrew Scripture. One of the characteristics of this particular religious group, this favored class is that they only believe that the first five books of the Bible are Scripture. They only accept the writings of Moses, the first five books. Because of that, they did not believe in the resurrection. As you're going to see, Jesus most definitely believed in the resurrection. In fact, Jesus is going to claim to be the resurrection. Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead in just a few short chapters But the Sadducees are going to come to him with an argument based on a strange section of Moses' law regarding marriage, that if a man married a woman and they had no children and then that man died, to keep that man's family going, his brother, if he had one, must step in as the husband. 
land rights, land use with no social security system. It was all about family and maintaining wealth. So even spouses stayed within the family as a means of survival in the ancient world and not only in Israel. And using the idea of marriage, this group thinks they're going to pin Jesus just as a chess player might try to outmaneuver an opponent. Look with me in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. It says, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. Luke's telling you right at the front, in case you didn't know, what their core doctrine is. They deny the resurrection. They asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's the law. That was true. Here's the absurd situation. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. One way that sometimes people try to prove that something isn't true is by constructing some absurd situation to show that it doesn't apply. That's what they've done here. Here's Jesus' answer. Now, this is going to be subtle. This is going to test your observation skills. Number one Bible writing tip at Crosspoint is slow down. Jesus is going to give a very short answer. In just a verse or two, he's going to answer them and tell them why they're wrong. I want you to read with me and see if you can figure it out and see why the match is over and everybody watching knew that Jesus had beat them in the very few words that he says. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. In other words, marriage pertains to this life right here, right now. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, in other words, the afterlife that you don't believe in, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, in the afterlife, marriage is not going to exist. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. What Jesus is telling them here is simple. Your absurd idea doesn't work because the future life is on a whole other level with an entirely new set of relationships compared to this earth. Marriage will not be a fact. It will not exist in the world to come. The life that follows this one, the eternal life that is coming after the resurrection, marriage will not be part of God's plan. That may come as a word of sadness to some and a word of relief to others, but that's what Jesus is saying. Now here is why. See if you can understand why he says that is so. But that the dead are raised even Moses showed. In other words, you only believe in the writings of Moses, you need to look no further. 
that the dead are raised, that the resurrection exists, even Moses can tell you that, in the passage about the bush. What is the passage about the bush in the writings of Moses? What book is that? Told you we were going to study our Bible skills. What book is that? He wrote five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Which is it? Exodus. There is a famous story, a foundational story in the story of Israel. They have been languishing in slavery for over four centuries, and God, of his own volition, appears to Moses and says to this worn down, humbled man, you are going to go back to Egypt, and I am going to use you to set my people free. What chapter was that? Exodus chapter? Three. In Exodus chapter 3, God speaks to Moses, appearing in a bush. Moses was a shepherd. He sees a fire that cannot be extinguished. God speaks to him from the bush, saying, take your feet off. You're standing on holy ground. And then he reveals himself to Moses in this way. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any question. When they heard that, they conceded. My question to you, why? What's the point? How does verse 38, according to Jesus, prove the resurrection? I didn't take the time to do this at the 9 a.m. service because we have to get on time to get all of you in here. I'm comfortable with a little bit of silence. Look at verse 38 and you tell me how in the world verse 38 proves the resurrection. The people listening, the skeptics understood it, and they said, well, you shut us up. Let's stop talking to him. He always wins. What is it in verse 38 that proves the existence of a life after this one, the existence, in fact, of a resurrection? Let me read it to you again. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Anybody got it? Verse 37. He is the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In simple paraphrase, here is what Jesus is saying. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob right now because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in, are alive and in relationship with God at this very moment. He is not the God who was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are enjoying God at this moment. When they heard that based on their knowledge of Scripture, they shut up. The point of this story is simply this. According to Jesus, the resurrection is a future fact. 
God is eternal. He's not subject to the linear progress of time the way you and I are, where we can look at old pictures and imagine the joy of future events. I'm living in that season now where I can't believe how big my sons are. They're grown men now. I can look back in pictures and see them as infants, but those days are long gone. Now I have other future hopes for them that no longer have anything to do with childhood. God sees all of time. One way to think of it is God lives in the eternal present. He doesn't look forward and backward. He sees all of human history as you might look at a very small plate where you can see it all at once. The resurrection, according to God, by God's own choice, is just as certain, is just as much a fact as things that you and I consider history already are. Now, this is really important, and I have four simple thoughts, and I'm going to hurry because, remember, I already confessed to you that I'm preaching too long, and then I took quite a while to guide you, give you some biblical thoughts about this latest scandal. Can you give me 15 minutes of your undivided attention? If you catch these four ideas, they're life-changing. Here's the first. Because of the reality of the resurrection, according to Jesus, life with God begins now and will last forever. When you trust Jesus, you have eternal life. When you trust Jesus as Savior and you make yourself, because of your trust in Him, part of the sons and the daughters of God that Jesus says are those who are going to be worthy of the resurrection, not because they've earned it, but because they are in relationship with God, your life with God begins at that moment. Some of you are in a really sweet season of life because just a few weeks ago you trusted Jesus and you have discovered a whole new life. You have a new vision, you have a new enjoyment, you have new perspective, you have new confidence because you now have in you life that did not exist a year ago. Some of you, some of us, including myself, sometimes lose sight of the fact that the moment you trust Jesus, you're already in his family and you're already enjoying life with him. Listen to the way Paul explained it in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Listen to how present the eternal life of Christ is to Paul. Ask yourself if your life sounds, looks, and feels anything like this because this is the eternal life you've already been given. Read it with me, in fact. If you have it in your notes, read the Bible uh, verse I printed out there for you. If you're using the app, it's there as well. Read with me, please. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See the connection? Jesus loved me and gave himself. He died for me. He was crucified for me. And when he was crucified, Paul says, it's as if I died with him. So now it is no longer I who live, but Jesus, eternal life, lives in me. One of the greatest mistakes that people make in the Christian life is that trusting Jesus will secure their eternal life and their life in the present world is to be lived any way they please. That's not true. 
Jesus is eternal life beginning the moment you trust him. He changes everything if you really know him. You begin living with him, loving him, enjoying him, hearing him in his words, speaking to him in prayer. The moment you are brought into God's family as Jesus describes here. Number two, Jesus says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you think about those three men, you may remember their sins. Abraham, who was called a friend of God and is the father of the faith, and according to Genesis 15, 6, believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, proving forever that salvation can never be earned. It can only be received when people simply, humbly trust God. Abraham, for all of his virtues and for all of his faith, for all that we owe him, was also a man who continually presented his wife as a family member, not his wife, to secure the favor of powerful people around him. Not be too harsh to Abraham, it was something like exposing his wife through pimping to secure his life, to make sure he himself was not attacked, to make sure he would be protected as they journeyed through pagan lands. Horrendous character fault, horrendous sin. Isaac and Jacob, if you examine their lives, at every point there is weakness and failure and sin in each of them, and yet they are, according to Jesus, in relationship with God, enjoying Him right now, because the effect of the resurrection is when God redeems all things, when He completes salvation, number two, we will be who we were meant to be, and we will enjoy God as God has always been. That's the beauty of the resurrection. And this is so undertaught and I'm part of the guilty and not teaching it well and not teaching it enough. There is a conception that comes from old Greek thinking that is not biblical at all. People imagine that the afterlife looks like something like those old Red Bull commercials where people are granted wings and float around. Have you seen the commercials? You know what I'm talking about? That's a Greek idea. Floating around in harps, hopping from cloud to cloud, occasionally strumming a harp, entirely Greek, not at all biblical. What does eternal life, what does the eternal state look like? Read the end of the Bible, read Revelation. John sees a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't see everything blown to bits and turned into harps and clouds. He sees a new heaven and a new earth inhabited by people in resurrected, perfected, glorified bodies. The example and the first fruits, to use the biblical term of all of this, is Jesus himself. Jesus came back in a resurrected body. People recognized him as Jesus himself. He even presented himself to his doubting disciple. His name was Thomas. Thomas doubted and said, I'll need to see the wounds. And Jesus in the flesh, back from the dead in a resurrected body, presented himself to Thomas and said, look at the wounds. Touch the wounds. See the scars. It's really me. And Thomas fell in worship and said, my Lord and, very important, he called Jesus my Lord and my, my God. 
This has God, who has come in the flesh, taken on the nature of human beings to be tempted and die in our place for our sins because he had none of his own so that we could have the eternal life through his resurrection. What we will celebrate in just a few short weeks, the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament calls the first fruits. In other words, Jesus is the first and the best part of the resurrection. You will be resurrected yourself. And then all of you will be remade. You will enjoy eternal life. You will be for the first time in your life the person that God always meant you to be before sin killed you and ruined you. For those who think that life in the eternal will be less than what we've enjoyed here and that perhaps not having marriage will be one of the great losses, let me remind you of what C.S. Lewis said. Thinking of eternity, C.S. Lewis spoke of human beings and said this, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. A third thought. We will be tempted to live as this earthly life is all that there is. The best the Sadducees could come up with to try to trap Jesus was an absurd example making up a story of a woman who married seven different men, all of them brothers. Maybe their marriages were just that good and they could conceive of marriage as the very best thing that anybody could enjoy. Jesus is telling them there is life on a whole other plane, but the mistake of the Sadducees, they were so enamored perhaps because of their power and their influence and their prestige in society and over the temple, they made this fatal mistake that is common even among Christians today. This life is as good as it gets. There's even a famous book written by someone who is esteemed as a Christian leader entitled, Your Best Life Now. Boy, I hope not. I hope this is not my best life now. My life has been blessed. I don't have a single thing I deserve, and almost everything that's been placed in my life has been wonderful. But I've seen enough of life in my own experience, and especially in the experience of others, to think if this is the best it gets, I'd rather have a refund, please. No, the best life, the true life, the redeemed life, the restored life, when God restores and redeems everything he made, beginning with the human beings he saved through the gift of his son, that is still to come. But there is a continual temptation to give your life to earthly concerns. Following Jesus instead means living earthly life with eternal priorities. Please hear me this, son, Christian. Christians, especially here in affluent Orange County, with all of the pressures of acceptance, of fashion, of owning the right kinds of things, of having children and the right kind of children who go to the right kinds of places and get into the right schools and get onto the right teams and have the right kinds of awards, there is a continual pressure to give all of your life away to things that won't matter one minute after you're dead if they matter five years from now. Very few things in this life that people most passionately give themselves to matter within a year or two. 
the earthly perspective the disciple of Jesus is to evaluate are the things I'm spending my money on, are the things I'm giving my life to. In other words, do my calendar and do my bank account reflect eternal priorities or am I falling without meaning to into the error of the Sadducees squeezing the best and the most out of life here because I believe that's all there actually is. Listen to how Paul pressed this priority onto Christians in the first century. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This again is another passage you can read with me, and please do. Paul wrote, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's a simple instruction, Christian. Please follow it. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, because eternal life begins right now. Jesus won't be your life in heaven. He is your life right now. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The fourth and final thought because Jesus isn't done with his opponents. Look in verse, in Luke chapter 20, please. They shut up. They pull back. Jesus doesn't. Look in verse 41. But he said to them, notice verse 40, they no longer dared to ask him any question, but he said to them, how can they say that Christ is, that the Christ is David's son? They were only looking for a human deliverer. They thought that the Messiah would be an ordinary human being to run off the Romans. The best they could hope for was earthly liberation because that's all the Sadducees believed in in the first place, is life on this earth. Jesus has a question for them. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, quoting now, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's another little subtle thing from the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is saying, I'd like to remind you that in the book of Psalms, when when David spoke of the Messiah, David spoke of the Messiah who would come after him and be David's son, he also called him his Lord. How can that be? Well, that's the fourth thought. Only Jesus, the son of David, the one who was born from Mary, the one who was actually born and placed into a manger, the actual human being who is Jesus, is also the eternal son of God. God has come in the flesh and only Jesus, the son of David, who is the eternal son of God, can give us this resurrection life. That's why you'll look in vain to any other teacher, any other philosophy, any other set of rules. Only Jesus, the pre-incarnate eternal God, can do this for you. And then he warns them. And how timely this is in view of the ugly story I told you before we began this sermon, to look out for religious leaders who may not be what they appear and may not have your best interests in mind. Look at verse 45. 
In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. 2,000 years old, as timely as Twitter. Jesus is warning the crowd, you have all kinds of people around you, many of whom you trust, many of whom appear to be expert in the Word of God who will lead you astray. They appear to be credible and godly on the surface, but they actually have the deepest interest in their heart is their own advancement and their own enrichment. Look at the Scriptures instead. Understand that the God who speaks to you is the God of everyone who ever trusted Him beginning with Abraham and going back even further into Israel's history before there was even Israel, people trusted God and entered into eternal life with Him and were welcomed into God's family. Now the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, is actually on earth showing people and telling people through His very existence exactly who God is and where eternal life can be found. Christian. However else anybody disappoints you, including any way that you disappoint yourself, any way that a pastor betrays you or hurts you or misrepresents the gospel, you hold on to Jesus. He will give you eternal life. He will guide you safely through this life. He has a lot of good under-shepherds and some lousy ones too. If I prove ever at any point in my ministry to be a lousy under-shepherd, you keep your eyes on the good shepherd because he's the one that will give you the resurrection and eternal life. Let's pray together. Can I just ask you quickly, if you know this Christ as Savior, online, here in the tent, have you ever come to the point with all of the controversy, with all the studying, with all the thinking, with all the things you've heard from all these sources, have you ever come to the point of humbly trusting Jesus as your Savior? If you haven't, my invitation to you is that you would do it now, and if you're here in the tent, that you would fill out a card in the bulletin, let us know, leave it in the baskets on the way out. If you're online, send it to the text message to the number on your screen. Send us his name, just the name Jesus, to that number, and let us know that you're ready to trust Christ or that you're doing so today. Father, sometimes the time and certainly my capacity is totally inadequate to the reality of life, Lord, as we live it day to day. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel, for your good news of the news of yourself, that you have come and you've been perfectly empathetic. You've actually entered into our human experience as an actual, ordinary, true human being, and yet you are the eternal Son of God, who lays his life down, his one only beloved life down, to die for our sins so that we could have this eternal life. Lord, my concern for myself, my family, and this church is that we would experience eternal life day to day, that we would not wait and look for it at some future date after a moment after we draw our last breath on this earth, but that we would enjoy eternal life with you right now because you are the God only of those who remain alive and in relationship with you.
If anybody here needs to trust you, whether they're here in person or watching us online, I pray that they would. And comfort us and guide us, Lord, through this world with all of these failures, with all of these scandals. Help the failures and the frailties of other human beings like ourselves keep our attention ever more faithfully focused on you. I pray in Jesus' name and Crosspoint said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Love you.